The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-9. through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. As he said, my name is Corey Johnston. I'm the founding pastor for Heights Church uh, in the St. Louis Metro East. And um, you all supported us and you gave us, I think, uh, well over $12,000 over the course of two years. So, um, so whenever I say I'm honored to be here, I don't, I don't just say that lightly. I don't just say that because it's in my notes, although it is in my notes, but I, I love this church, man. I, I love um, the vision, the mission. Uh, I love Justin Dean. He, we have a, a very much have a, a big brother, little brother um, type of relationship where you might imagine he is the big brother in this role. And that sounds really cute, but it really just means he just makes fun of me and is embarrassed to, to, to invite me to meet his friends, you know? And so, um, but I, I love him. He is, he's faithful. Um, and, I, and I say this to really paint a picture. I'm, and I mean this in all honesty. Uh, next to Jesus Christ, Justin Dean has been one of the most influential men in my life. Um, and so I hold him in high honor and high esteem uh, as a brother. I, I love this church. Um, I love that man you all have been. I want to just stress how influential you've been in the St. Louis Metro East. If, if it were not for God calling me uh, specifically to Collinsville, I would scratch and beg to come and serve at Sacred City. Um, it would be my dream. Uh, to be here. And, and I mean that. And so um, I'm grateful for you. I'm thankful for you. Um, I'm not Justin Dean. Um, you know, how some people get up on stage and they can sing and some people get up on stage and they can sing. You know what I'm saying? This dude can preach. You with me? And like, I get up here, I'm gonna hold your attention for about 42 minutes. And then you're gonna be like, what do we do with all this spare time? And, uh, <laughs> um, but he can preach. He kicked off First Peter. I was listening to it in my dining room trying to navigate how to communicate First Peter to you all. And he said something along the lines of, you know what we do with your money, sacred city? We blow holes in the gates of hell. And I was like, yes, like in my dining room, like on the table, like, yeah, man, he's got us down there just playing with dynamite in the Metro East too, man. And it is a gift um, to be here. I'm, I'm super excited to, to come. Uh, to be here, to be able to share the gospel uh, with you. And so let me pray for us one more time, and then we'll, we'll dive into this together as a family. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters that are here, that we are family. God, I pray that you would anoint this time. I pray that you would steal my anxieties, Lord. I thank you for laughter and fun that we can have as a family. But God, I pray that you would quiet my thoughts. Help me to be attentive to your word. Be attentive to your spirit. Help me, as always, Father, to listen to those who are in front of me. Help me to be mindful of their nonverbals. Help me to dig in where it needs to be dug in. I pray for those that are here, God. I pray for the, legit, the religious, 
the not yet Christian, God, I pray that you would open their hearts so that they might hear the gospel. Pray for those, God, that just are swimming in the grace of the gospel, that they might be edified again as saints. God, I pray all this in your name, by the gift and power of your spirit. All God's people said, amen and amen. There's one commonality that we have in this room. Uh, Regardless of where you stand, regardless of religious affiliation, regardless if you're a Christian or a non-Christian or where you come from, there's, there's one shared reality that will exist and one commonality that exists among us, and that is that we will suffer, that it's inevitable, that it's absolutely, it's going to happen to us, whether you are a Christian or non-Christian. And within the context of 1 Peter, what he's talking about specifically in light of suffering is persecution. But now it doesn't even matter if you're a Christian or not, does it? You can experience persecution just for having a different opinion than someone else who is a little more tolerant than you until you disagree with them, of course. And so there's various types of suffering that Peter kind of throws in this kitchen drawer. There's various trials that we, will exi- that, that we will experience as a people, but specifically he's talking about persecution. And so if you're a Christian and you're aiming to walk out biblical community or you're aiming to walk out the, just the reaction to the gospel that we call missional community, you will be targeted and you absolutely will be persecuted for your faith. It is going to happen. And for some of you, you might think, that sounds a little extreme, guest speaker, you know. I thought so too, uh, until I learned that the Southern Poverty Law Center, that is the organization that much of our news media looks to, um, to try and classify different organizations as hateful organizations or as extremist organizations, started classifying Christian organizations who simply believe in heterosexual marriage as a biblical view of marriage as an extremist, hateful organization. They started classifying on their website organizations that believe that sex outside of marriage, whether it be heterosexual or homosexual, is against God's design. They're classified, listen to me, they're classified under the same categories as Nazi extremists. You feel the weight of that. We are just maybe months or years away from denominations being classified as hateful and extreme organizations. We are so close to local churches, Sacred City Church, Heights Church, whatever church, being classified on these websites that CNN is looking to, to see who are hateful and who are extreme organizations in our country. Look at me and tell me that persecution is not happening Right now, in this moment, it is just a matter of time before it starts hitting home. And so what I want to bring to you today, and what I want you to consider in our time together is, how are you going to respond? Because it is inevitable. It's going to happen. So how is it that you will respond whenever persecution walks in your room? Viktor Frankl, who was a Jewish uh, psychotherapist, was put in Nazi death camps during World War II, and he actually survived being in Auschwitz, which is crazy. And he said, as a psychopath therapist, as he was watching people in their persecution and in their suffering, that there was four different ways that they responded while being in these Nazi death camps. He said they responded one way was anger. Who are you? Who do you think you are? Why would you put us in here? Why would you do this? Rage would come out of them. 
He said some, the second way, would respond with despair or hopelessness. And he tells of the story of a man who thought he had had a vision from God and he thought the war was going to end on March 28th. And as the war got closer and closer to March 28th and there was no sign of the war coming to an end, this man's despair, is that my breath? This man's despair grew so deep in him that whenever it started reaching March 28th or whatever day it was, by the two days later, by March 30th, he had shriveled up and died on the floor. His despair was so great because of his persecution. The third way he said that people respond was with survival. If I can just get back my job, if I can just get back to my family, if I can just get back to my relationships, well, then I'll be okay. Then I'll be satisfied and I'll have everything that I need if I can just get back my stuff that I think brings me hope. He said the fourth way that people responded was with hope. And they responded with, he said, an inner liberty that kept them buoyant in the midst of great persecution and suffering. Frankel said, and I quote, life only has meaning if we have a hope that suffering and even death cannot destroy and take from us. Life only has meaning if we have a hope that suffering and even death cannot destroy and take from us. And the beauty of the gospel, First Peter, is that we have a living hope, as you all would have heard about last week as you're working through this, right? And as we come into First Peter this week, he said, it is in this living hope, it's in this salvation, it is in this gospel that we rejoice as a people. And the way that we know that we can have great confidence in our salvation as a living hope, the way that we know that we have this inheritance that is sealed for us in the kingdom by God's power and not by our own is seen in the way we are persecuted as the church. If you know anything about church history, we don't have time to get in. Actually, I probably did have time to get into it. Um, We don't have time to get into all of it. But you know that the church always thrives. The bride always thrives during deep and intense seasons of persecution. So how do we respond? How will we respond? When someone lashes out at you on Facebook, how do you respond? Is it with anger? Who do you think you are? Not like my post, right? Is it with despair? Well, I tried and they come against me. How do you respond in persecution? Maybe you're in a relationship. Is it survival? I know I shouldn't be in this relationship, but maybe they'll change. Maybe you're a non-Christian dating a non, maybe you're a Christian dating a non-Christian or vice versa. How do you respond even in the midst of a relationship that has persecution? Do you respond with a hopeful expectation for your coming king? Do you respond as we sang with our eyes transfixed on the author of our persecution as he's pinning it next to us? You see, we think in our minds, I believe, we have this reality in us, this false reality where we believe in our American pride that God could allow Jesus to suffer persecution, but how dare him bring persecution to me? How dare him bring suffering to my doorstep? He can do that for my salvation, but him doing that for my sanctification? Who is he? Who does he think that he is? I don't understand why we as a church can't get behind the the reality that God still allows and continues to allow suffering for the greater good of our salvation. It's as seen in persecution. This is what we will see in 1 Peter. So there's three points that I want to make for you. If you're a note taker, feel free to write this down. One, the gospel frees us to experience persecution. The second one, the Father wills our persecution. And the third is that Jesus rewards our persecution. And what a day. Amen.
And so Peter comes out swinging here in 1 Peter, dropping gospel bombs on us. They remind you, Peter says, in this you rejoice. In what? What is the word this? What is he talking about? If you recall last week as you went through 1 Peter 3 through 5, I presume, he said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, Right out the gate. Bless the Father for sending Jesus. Why? According to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, right? He didn't just save us so that we might wait and die one day and inherit the kingdom, right? He saved us to a living hope. What is this hope, right? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from from the dead, he saved us to an inheritance that's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. Where is it? It's kept in heaven for you, who by our power, it's being guard. That's not what it says, is it? No, who by God's power power of his Holy Spirit. We're sealed in Christ Jesus. He's guarding our faith for his salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this gospel, Peter says, it is in this truth, in this gospel, in this inheritance, in this living hope, this salvation that will be made complete, in this great good news, we rejoice. And he says, and at the same time, simultaneously, We were also grieved, right? In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, we'll come back to if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. This blew my mind this week, church. As I just sat in there, I just studied this. I was telling Pastor Justin, I just, I'm preaching as a guy who's just wrecked by the gospel this week. Just setting it for myself. Um, we're in doing Genesis. We're 23 weeks in Genesis. I read this. I thought six verses. I've been preaching 36 verses. This is going to be easy. On the contrary, it's very, very difficult. It's just so loaded. I just sat in, in, in this all week long. It says, and here's what, I, here's what I got for you. The gospel of Jesus Christ leads us to do something that is unimaginable for someone who is outside of Jesus Christ. Right? Peter doesn't say that you have joy and you've also experienced grief, does he? He says, no, no, no. You presently have joy and you are presently being grieved by what is going on around you. The word grief here is the same word used for sorrow as Jesus is on his way to the cross in the garden, dripping, right, sweating drops of blood on his way to great persecution. And so what we see is that Peter's teaching us that it is the gospel of Jesus that allows us to simultaneously experience both joy and also sorrow at the same times, because we have been born again to a living hope, is what he says. What that means is that we've been sealed in the coming Messiah, and because of this, we have this reality, this eternal reality that is placed before us, then we now recognize the eternal joy that awaits and the eternal suffering that awaits. And so these momentary circumstances that bring joy and sorrow They're no longer just momentary anymore, church, but rather they are a foreshadowing of something eternal. For us, though, as a people, we want to categorize joy and sorrow. We we want to view our emotions in light of our current circumstances that that we're in in the moment. Uh, My two-and-a-half-year-old is a perfect example. I wish you knew him because this would be so much more funny for you. But his new thing, he's he's just like me. He's all emotion. He's high-touch. Like He's very relational. His new thing is we, we spank in our family, okay? Um, I, I don't care if you like that or not. And so we, we spank in our family. And his new thing is, we give him, he's so cute, so hard to spank him to me. He just don't look him in the eyes because he'll get you. So we pop him. And his new thing is, I'll never be happy again. That's what he says. And then I tickle him and was he, ha, ha, you 
know he's all back. What's he doing? Viewing emotions in light of circumstance. Viewing emotions in light of the temporal that is right before him. We do the same thing. This is why we can't always relate to other people whenever they're joyful, when they're happy. Why does that make you joyful? It doesn't make me joyful at all. This is also why we cannot always relate to people in sorrow or in sadness or in grief. I don't understand why you would feel that way. I don't understand how I might have offended you in this way or that way or why this thing makes you sad or that makes you sad. But the reality is to view emotions in light of circumstance and circumstance alone actually really actually leads us to be really insensitive. It really reveals just how self-centered that we are. If you think about marriage, this happens all the time as well. She or he no longer brings me joy. And so this new, fresh person comes by, and all of a sudden they make me feel a certain way, and they bring me a level of joy that my spouse no longer brings me. And now we're in emotional adultery, you see, until they don't bring me joy anymore. Now what are we doing? Now we're just bumping on to the next person that I can use to bring joy, to hide my sorrow. Right, we think about this with kids, actually. It's really easy for us to serve our kids and love our kids and pursue our kids as Christ has loved, served, and pursued us when they're easy. But when they're little demons, right? It's really hard, man. Now I'm angry and I'm impatient. Who do you think you are to get in my way while I'm trying, you know? And then in that, like circumstantially, we, it's no longer to serve and love them as God has served and loved us eternally, because in the momentary affliction of our kids, we get wrapped up in that. You think about your job, and we could go on and on. You think about your job. How easy is it to go to work whenever things are going well for you? How difficult is it to go to work and work and do all things to the glory of the Lord whenever you're experiencing sorrow, right? When you feel like your boss is persecuting you, he's probably not persecuting you. He's probably just performance managing you. And so to view joy and light, <clears throat> and to view joy and sorrow in light of circumstance alone is really self-centered. It kind of shows how we look into ourselves and how we care so much about ourselves and right now and what's happening right now instead of what's happening in the eternal. But what happens, Peter's telling us, is that through regeneration, like through giving a new heart, through this new living hope, the temporary now holds value in the eternal. We view the temporary circumstance in light of the eternal that we're going to be, that we are invited into. And so the gospel of Jesus frees us to simultaneously experience grief and joy because the gospel renews our hearts. This is what it means to have a living hope. Tim Keller says the gospel not only renews our hearts, but gives us a bigger heart where Christians are both sadder and happier than everyone else in the world. We're no longer looking at our feelings and our emotions as temporal, but now our emotions begin to reflect eternity. They begin to reflect where we will spend the rest of our, our time with our Savior. There's no longer momentary joy for the Christian. It's no longer just circumstantial for the Christian. It is eternal, a picture of the eternal, a picture of the glory that we get to have in the Father. He says, in this we are rejoicing Right? As we're being served and people serve us and we get to serve others, as we walk out missional community, as we experience the blessings of the church, as we experience means of grace as a church, as we take communion, like none of that is temporal anymore. It's a foreshadowing of the eternal. There's something different that takes place in us. Likewise, when we look at the news and we see white supremacists and we see Nazi flags and social injustice and quarreling and fights and death and loss and genocide and riots. We no longer recognize that as temporal church, 
but rather we look at that and we recognize that is a picture of where they will spend eternity if they don't experience the regeneration of Jesus Christ. That is a picture of how their self-centeredness is going to affect them forever. They are going to live in hate. They are going to live in self-centeredness. They are going to live in anger, live in rage, live in wrath, live in malice if they are not regenerated. And so when we see the news, we don't say, oh, it sucks for them. No, we, we plead for them, for the regeneration of their hearts, because that's where they're going to spend the rest of their lives. And that's with common grace we see on the news. Imagine their lives without any grace outside of the gospel. I had the opportunity to set this week with some African-American pastors in Ferguson. If you're familiar with Ferguson, that's eight miles from my house. The tensions are still high, still high there. Every time something new hits the news, the tension sparks back up there. This African-American pastor pled with the father. This African-American pastor, older man, pled with the father. He said, Father, please regenerate the hearts of the Ku Klux Klan. Please regenerate their hearts. He brought me to tears in the midst of his prayer because in the midst of him feeling persecuted, in the midst of him feeling sorrow, he was also rejoicing in the regenerative possibilities of the gospel, pleading for these men. I had to repent in the midst of his prayer because I've not pled for the hearts of those men. Have you pled for their hearts? When you understand the gospel, your perspective shifts. Your eyes are now fixed. They're taken from you and placed rightfully on your Savior. Which is important because while we can experience both joy and suffering here, we can only experience one or the other eternally. Which then should drive us to mission. Only the gospel can give you a sadder and happier heart. The next thing that Peter tells us is that God wills these trials, wills this persecution for us, for our sanctification, for our good. So in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, right? If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The most difficult thing about preaching first Peter was that there are no periods at the end of sentences at all. You preach a narrative, Period, period, period. Easy. You got thoughts within thoughts and hyphens. And I was like, what is happening? What is happening here? He says, in this you rejoice, though for now a little while, comma, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I don't know about you, church, but whenever I read this text, I want to know who makes that call. Like who decides if now's the necessary time for me to experience some stuff. You with me? And like, if necessary, who determines that, right? We know who that person is. That is God the Father. He wills our persecution for our sanctification. If you don't know what that means, let me I'll unpack it for you. God allows us to experience trials to refine us, just as that gold is refined, right? The gold is placed into the fire, and anything that's imperfect in it is then burnt away so that it is presented as it should be. Well, God allows the effects of living in a sinful world to come against you, without he himself actually being in sin. God allows the effects of sin to come against you without he himself actually being in sin. And, and every Christian at the core believes this because this is the reality of the cross of Christ, is it not? God allowed sinful creation to come against its sinless creator so that we could be redeemed. 
God allowed this sinful persecution to take place place for the redemption of our souls. If God allowed Jesus to experience suffering for the salvation of the world, why would he not allow suffering to hit those who are being saved? Why would he not want us to be sure of our salvation? Some people ask all the time, why would God allow suffering? To test the genuineness of your faith. To test the genuineness of your salvation. Because there's nothing more precious than your relationship with Christ. Everything else is worth sacrificing outside of that. There's nothing more important than the salvation of your soul. Everything that you look to, everything that you long for, all that you crave in this world that this world will never deliver to bring any sort of hope to you is going to fade away. What will remain? The salvation of your soul. Everything else is passing. And let me tell you, we need some persecution in our culture. We need persecution. Right? Some of you have been so blessed with riches that you've completely lost sight of how richly you've been blessed in Christ. You have too much. You need some of it. You need to take a loss now and then. Because whenever trials come, it's not the Lord that is regularly and often sought out. But it is anger, and it is despair, and it is if I could just reacquire my stuff, if I could just get back on my feet, if I could just get back in this relationship, if I could just get this job or this money or this thing that I had, then I'll be okay. Like some of us never turn to God until persecution hits, until some sort of suffering or trial hits. And so we need this, right? It sounds maybe morbid, but we need to experience death. We need to experience loss. We need to experience burdens so that we might be refined and sanctified in Christ Jesus. Because it isn't until something you hold more dear to you than Jesus is tampered with that you will actually turn to him. And he knows this. So God uses various trials, Peter says, specifically persecution, not limited to that, to sanctify us to burn away anything that looks, like, looks more like us and less like Jesus Christ. This is why the enemy is scared to death of you sharing the gospel. He, he wants you to be scared. He also wants you to be scared of sharing the gospel, doesn't he? Because he makes you think scared, fearful of, of acceptance. What will people think? How will people respond? What will they do to me? He wants us to fear persecution because he is scared to death of us going out on the front lines. And so we should never cower back for persecution because it is through persecution. It is in the midst of it as God is pinning this persecution seated next to us that we actually more clearly understand our holiness. We can more clearly understand and identify with what our Savior has walked through to redeem us and to save us, to seal our inheritance for us. But we do. We, we fear persecution. We fear what people will think if we mention Jesus. We fear that acceptance. We, we fear so many different things. But the reality is you cannot avoid suffering. It doesn't matter, Christian, non-Christian. It doesn't matter anymore. You're going to experience persecution if you have a thought that is different than someone else's now. So you might as well embrace it. The only benefit, I put this on social media this week, the only benefit to avoiding suffering is that your avoidance reveals the idols of your heart. In your avoiding persecution, the Lord actually uses that to show you what you actually turn to instead of him. Pride, arrogance, money, resources, whatever it might be. And so you need to kind of wrestle with what do you turn to? And then know, rest assured that all of that is going to disappear. No matter how tightly you cling to it, when the refining of the fire actually comes down, it's all gone. 
Christ Jesus will stand there. Consummation is going to happen. Everything is going to be made anew. Yes and amen. And all the things that you thought sustained you in this world will absolutely disappear. And your salvation will remain, Peter says. God allows this suffering to happen because he wants to take everything comfortable from you so that he's the only thing that can bring comfort to you. That's a quote from Pastor Justin Dean. It's good. Listen to it. God allows suffering to happen and wants to take everything comfortable from you so that he is the only one to bring you comfort. Somebody amen there, pastor. No? You guys don't amen in the north? (laughs) I'm from the south, so people talk to me, so I feel like I'm a better communicator there, you know? But if you're truly walking as a Christian and truly walking out missional community, everywhere you eat, work, and play, persecution is going to happen. It is for our good. It's for the good. Shuts our little idol factory down, doesn't it? Let me share some stories with you. This is not to exalt me in any way. Uh, This is just what I said in this week. I've only been a Christian for nine years. Uh, First church I ever went to was highly dysfunctional. The second church I went to, I did my church planting residency at through Acts 29. The third church I went to is the church I started. Uh, Next year, I will have attended our church longer than any other church in my life wasn't raised in church at all. I was just, wasn't even a Christian. Just woke up, believed in Jesus one day, and now here we are. Four months after I became a Christian, all of my friends left me. Everyone that, that I loved left me. Let me tell you what, eight years later, every time they come to St. Louis and they don't say hi, it hurts. Every time I look at their Instagram and there's a new wedding invite that I don't get, It hurts. And they left me because I'm a Christian. That is persecution. They left me because they couldn't wrap their minds around why I didn't want to continue drinking with them and doing drugs with them and partying with them. I didn't even throw the Bible at them. I just stopped drinking. And they rolled on me. Listen to me. And every time I met with a new post on Facebook or on Instagram or whatever, I have to come to a place before the Father where he's asking, do you want the old man or do you want the new man? Do you really have a living hope or not? Do you really want them or do you really want me? My real brother, my real brother, full-blown atheist, makes fun of me, mocks me all the time. And and, and how do I respond? With anger. If you just knew, if you just knew what I've been through or despair, why doesn't he get it? Why can't he just get it? Sometimes I turn to stuff. Well, maybe I should just buy the things like he has and get a $15,000 side-by-side and a $5,000 four-wheeler and like we could go and party and hang out and then maybe he would see. And every time I'm confronted with my brother, I have to be confronted with the gospel and it says, are you a son? Do you actually believe that you're a son, you're an heir with Christ Jesus? Do you believe that, that there is something coming where I will set you next to the son for eternity? I'm gonna invite you into the throne room of grace. You don't need that stuff. Do you actually believe that? Let me give you some more. My mom died of a drug addiction, became a drug addict when she was 15, died in November, 63 years old, from drug abuse. I preached the gospel at her funeral, and people were outraged, mad at me as I called a room full of addicts to repentance and told them they were the part of the reason that my mom was in the casket. Physically angry and mad at the message even though I preached the gospel, gave them hope, showed them the hope of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Persecution is going to happen. I had to come to terms. Corey, do you want to preach the gospel or do you just want to overlook the elephant that's in this room today? Even asked my cousins, are you okay with me saying this? 
because I'm scared to get up and just proclaim the good news today. Persecution is going to happen. Let me share another one with you. This is just like in the last year of my life. A little over a year ago, my best friend's uncle passed away. This is the hardest one for me. A little over a year ago, my best friend's uncle passed away. Um, let me paint a better picture. My best friend, my mom would be out on a binge. I would go live with him. So his mom was my mom. His dad was my dad. His sister was my sister. I had my own room at their house. It wasn't just a high school friend. It was family. A year and a half ago or so, his uncle passed away. So his mom calls me, my pseudo mom, if you're following. She says, Corey, I want you to do the funeral. I said, yeah, anything you want, whatever you need. And she said, but you cannot talk about Jesus. I said, why not? And she said, because he wasn't very religious. And I said, I, I don't know how to bring hope outside of Jesus. I don't know how to bring hope to the funeral outside of the gospel. And she said, well, you can't talk about him. And I said, well, then I won't do it. And in that moment, disowned. Over a year now, year and a half, we have minimal communication. I went there at Christmas. She didn't even acknowledge my kids. Like disowned me, but not even look at my kids. My best friend calls me right after that conversation. He says, bro, what did you say to my mom? I told him the story that I just told you. He said, why? Who, do, why, who cares? It's a memorial service. I said, brother, because I want you to know the relationship with Christ Jesus is worth sacrificing every other relationship, including our own. He said, wow. Six months later, he asked me to officiate his funeral in the most eclectic place I've ever been in Bloomington, Indiana. Multiple races, multiple religions, Everything you can think of was there. People expressing, identifying, whatever they wanted to do, and I got to preach the gospel. People were making fun of my servant in the middle of his wedding. Persecution is going to happen. Now, I'll tell you, I officiated that funeral. I dropped bombs on him in that funeral, too. I had four people ask me, will you come down and officiate my family's funeral? I was like, are they dead? They're like, not yet, but they're on their way out. I was like, all right, well, <laughs> Sure. For the low, low price, I will drive back down here. So we just drop bombs on them. Here's what I want you to hear in that. I don't, I'm not exalting myself. I'm just trying to paint a picture. Here's what I got. Every day God puts you in a position to be persecuted. Are you looking for it or not? Because if it is, if it is for our sanctification, we should long for persecution so that we might experience sanctification. Do you long for your sanctification or do you stand back as cowards when it comes time to proclaim the gospel? That's the question. Do you want to know what it looks like to be made holy? You want to know more about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what he's brought to the table and the suffering that he's endured? If so, then we as a people will pursue persecution because we know it's for our sanctification and God is going to present us with a better understanding of our holiness. That's why he calls us to this. This is a living hope. There's an inner liberty within us, as Frankel says. Will you remain buoyant in the midst of persecution or not? And now, let me clarify. This letter was not written to super Christians. It wasn't written to church planters. It wasn't written to pastors. It wasn't written to some super missionary that we've exalted above other people because they can afford a passport. Peter was written to the elect, to the saints, to the common Christian, to everyone in this room, to me in this room, just written to us saying, this is going to happen. How will you respond? Will you remain buoyant or will you return with anger and despair and just try to crave your stuff? 
And uh, let me say this last thing too that, that I think hit home for me this week. If you're cowardice and, and running from opportunities to be bold, God will use your response to persecution as an apologetic for the gospel. If that's too heavy, I'm going to read it again, and then I'll unpack it for you. God will use your response to persecution as an apologetic for the gospel. What that means is that the way that you respond to someone coming at you can actually be a defense for what you believe. Because they can argue you intellectually, they can argue you in theory, but when as they're coming against you and raining down on you, and you're not returning in rage or despair or any other way, but you're returning with grace and love and you're clinging to the cross of Jesus Christ. You're clinging to your salvation. Look at me. That cannot be argued. It is used as a defense for the gospel. Your response can be. The third thing that he shows us is that Jesus rewards your persecution. All this happens so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire. Love this, man. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In our churches, we talk a lot about the second coming of Jesus. You can't unpack the gospel without talking about the second coming. We talk a lot about him coming in full glory to consummate all things, to renew all things. We talk about him coming to rescue the saints, right? It's all true. Him coming on his white horse. Well, Peter says that these trials that test us, the sanctification we endure through persecution, not only does it bring assurance of our faith, not only does it bring refining of our faith, man, but that we will be crowned. Listen to me but that we will be crowned for our faithfulness, that our salvation will be complete. Think about this. Picture this with me. God is going to crown you with his glory. Revelation says his name is going to be placed upon your head. And think about this. Just if you to, whatever you have to do, envision, just envision this with me. I think about him like as he's going to place this crown on our heads, we're literally going to look up and see his nail-scarred hands. And when we see his hands, we're going to be reminded of the great suffering and the persecution that he endured for us, the atonement of sin for us, the propitiation of our sins. He satisfied the wrath of God in his sacrifice. As he crowns us, we'll be reminded of his suffering. I don't know about you, but as I think about just embracing my Savior, embracing my Jesus, just feeling literally with my hands the scars in his size for me and for you. Like we're going to recall the suffering of our Savior. And Hebrews 12 says, Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Who for the joy, listen to me, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, like endured the suffering of the cross. Simultaneously, right? He has eternity in mind. Jesus endures persecution. Jesus experiences for us both joy and also sorrow. Right? As he's in the garden, as I mentioned earlier, he's looking at this, he's experiencing sorrow, yet there's a joy that is before him as he's moving for him, moving towards the cross. What does he say? Father, is there any other way? Is there any other way I can get through this? Is there another way that we can do this? And the father says, no. You absolutely must walk through this temporal circumstance so that they might experience eternity with you. 
And he does it with joy, with great joy, Hebrews says. Now, here's what left me, just blew my mind this week. Do you understand what the joy was that was set before him? Like, do you understand what joy was so powerful that it led the king of kings to hang on a cross in our place? What could be so powerful? What could be so empowering for him? Can we just read Isaiah 53 together? It won't be on the screen, but let me just read to you Isaiah. I don't think there's any other way to close the sermon than Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs, amen, and carried our sorrows, look at this persecution, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. No anger, no despair, right? By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of the people? They thought God was out to get him and him alone. And they made his grave with the wicked, as we sing about, and with a rich man in his death, although he had no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, listen, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, just as it is the will of the Lord for us to experience suffering. He was put to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is a picture of our king's suffering and persecution. But hear the good news. Hear the joy that drove him. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. But he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for these transgressors. What was powerful enough to drive Jesus to the cross? The justification of the saints. What was powerful enough to drive Jesus? What, What joy was set before him? Your salvation. You. Just think about this. Think about how you view yourself sometimes with guilt and shame or wherever you're in. Maybe you think too highly of yourself sometimes. The creator of all things looked out across all eternity and the joy that drove him to the cross was your salvation, my salvation. Good grief. Sanctification of the saints, relationship with us, relationship with one another, right? Knowing that he would crown you that he would place his honor and his glory upon you. That drove him. That was powerful enough to drive him to the cross. Do you know Jesus intimately like that? Do you know him as intimately as he knows you? Because not only that, as if it were not enough, the salvation of our souls, right? Right? Just thinking about him crowning me with honor and glory. And, And then even a step further, as we spend our lives living on mission and rolling through persecution as it comes, as we spend our lives walking out missional community, speaking to the honor of Jesus and the glory of Jesus and preaching and teaching Jesus as we walk through life together, as we spend our lives telling his story, just think about this. He crowns us and he says, hey, 
Let me tell you about them. Let me tell you about what they endured for me. Let me tell you about my son. Let me tell you about my daughter and everything that we crave in this world to bring us honor and to bring us glory will be laid upon our heads in that moment. And we will see his hands and we'll remember his suffering. He'll say, this is my son. This is my daughter. I've been waiting on you. You are my joy. God, thank you for letting me set in this this week. Everything that we crave in that moment will be named in Christ Jesus. Man. And as we push forward, right, as boulder after boulder and stone after stone is thrown at us, as circumstance after circumstance comes at us, how do we respond? What do we do with our eyes as we sung transfixed on our Jesus's face? I was in the military for a small time, not near long enough. You had to shoot howitzers, 13 Bravo, if anybody is familiar with this. And we had these guys, 13 Foxtrots, and they would run out, and they had this laser, man, and they would point this laser at the target, and they would tell us where we needed to shoot. That's how we're called to run into this battle of sharing the gospel, just like that, right? With our eyes simply transfixed, laser-focused, not in a theory, not, not in some abstract thought, but in reality, not just theologically, not just by our knowledge, but do you believe and are you transfixed on this reality that Jesus Christ is coming back to collect the saints, to crown you with glory as he is the king of kings? And then respond, How do, what if I'm not doing this? How do I respond? What do I do? Well, you simply respond by realizing that someone has already remained faithful in your place, that we will fail at this. We're going to bomb this. Amen. We're going to mess this up. We're going to miss opportunity after opportunity. And with a great assurance of hope, a living hope, our salvation, we know that regardless of how we respond, our inheritance is kept in the kingdom of God. Well, how do I know if I'm doing this? That's a good question to ask, church. Thank you for asking that question. It's a good question. Though you have not, now, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As you read that, just simply ask or answer it true or false. Though you have not now seen him, do you love him? Though you do not now see him, do you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory? Are you waiting for the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul? Because you can respond with anger and grief or hope and stuff or with an inner liberty. You can simply remember the gospel. That Jesus lives the life I cannot live. He died the death that I deserve to die. And he's waiting to crown me in great victory and honor regardless of how I move through this life. And when you fail, you, and you will fail. You will fail. We will fail. We simply recall the pages of First Peter and we say, in this we rejoice. But there is no shame there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, but rather we say in this we rejoice and we know that Jesus Christ is interceding for us, praying for our salvation, praying for our soul, pinning and orchestrating the persecution as it comes and simultaneously comforting by us by his spirit, those who are being redeemed. And when you feel as if you can push no further, you just simply recall that he took the ultimate sacrifice for you and just let that liberate you. Let his persecution set you free. I heard a pastor once say, the next time suffering walks in your room, the next time persecution walks in your room, the next time you experience various trials, just simply respond, welcome my slave. 
Now bring forth for me the glory that the Lord has desired. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for your good gospel. I thank you, God, that you've saved us and you redeem us, and it's not by our works. It's not by our obedience, Father. It's by your obedience and your faithfulness that you give us salvation. And the thought that you want to crown us, God, is crazy to me. Gosh, let that just set in my heart this week. Every day, every hour we need you as we sing. Father, I thank you for the good work that you're doing in Sacred City, the beautiful family partnership that we have as Heights Church. Pray all this in Jesus' name, by the gift and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.